What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Just for a Closer Walk podcast. My name is Joel Oslund, and it's always my privilege and honor to uh, get to spend a little bit of time with you, uh, looking through some of the different kinds of questions and insights uh, about the faith and into Scripture and into the context, and uh, maybe addressing some things that we haven't thought about uh, on a particularly deep level. And uh, all of this is in an effort to uh, really just love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and really emphasizing the mind portion of it here, uh, so just for a closer walk. Um, feel free to go back and check out the earlier podcast episodes if you want to know more what the uh, what the podcast is about. And also, I often mention uh, that there is also a companion blog, uh, for lack of a better expression, and that one can actually be found at the website justforacloserwalk.com. And there's not very much overlapping material. There's a lot that's complimentary. Uh, so if you are interested in reading, feel free to head over and take a look at that. And you're uh, more than welcome to like or subscribe on either platform, whether that's at the blog or if that's on this uh, podcast as well. Um, so we'll jump right into it here. Uh, so it wasn't too long back, um, actually within about the last month or so, that we had our, uh, as we like to call it, the quote-unquote, Super Bowl of the Christian faith, which is the uh, Resurrection Sunday, or uh, more popularly called as the Easter Sunday, and really just celebrating the victory of Christ over death in his resurrection. And, uh, and that's really kind of the hallmark or the linchpin of really the entire Christian faith. So there's, there's a lot of um, maybe positive contributions in terms of morality, that we can get from Christianity in terms of being a, maybe, you know, just a strictly a worldview or strictly as a religion. Um, there's a lot of other similar views, a lot of similar uh, types of thinking systems, whether that's, uh, whether they would call themselves religious or not. Uh, but there's a lot of great ethical systems, a lot of great moral teachings out there. Um, so really, uh, that's not the, uh, that's not the end all be all of the Christian faith. Uh, but it's it, and it's not just that Jesus died for our sins. And that's I think again kind of a part of the uh, part of the equation. But there's also been a lot of selfless, uh, self-sacrificing uh, figureheads through the ages, and a lot of people that have maybe died on behalf of somebody else. You know, this great sacrificial uh, picture of love and uh, and service. And, you know, so that by itself is, is wonderful and it's a great, you know, maybe example, it's, it's inspiring, but it's, again, it's not really totally unique. Uh, but what is unique now, it's not unique in the sense that there's nobody else that claims it because there are a lot of, uh, people or a lot of systems who have claimed, uh, to have their leader or their figurehead resurrected. And yet, um, what's unique is that in Christianity, we actually have, uh, historically, verifiable accounts. We have uh, reasonable <laughs> reasons <laughs> for uh, for uh, being able to believe that and and going back and things as simple as looking at you know the when you when you undergo the tests uh, for historicity that are subjected to any ancient text you know you test to determine authenticity and to uh, and, and date setting and all these things. Um, there's really not any ancient uh, historical manuscripts that even are, come reasonably close 
in terms of their uh, accuracy and how they pass all of these tests um, in relation to the scriptures. So it's uh, it, from a strictly historical, or even you might want to call it from a strictly scientific perspective, uh, what we have in the scriptures is the most accurate historical text of all time by a, a, a ridiculous margin. It's something like oh, 50,000 times more accurate or 5,000 times more accurate than the next closest historical manuscript in terms of passing all these tests uh, that the ancient manuscripts would have to undergo. So things like that that are very, very fascinating, um, even simple pictures like what is, uh, how, how could you possibly explain the growth of the Christian church initially, you know, and looking at all of the, uh, all of the maybe uh, contrarian views that would be used to uh, explain away the resurrection as, uh, you know, as maybe something that was quote unquote not so historically verified, um, which in all of these just fall short, you know, so there's kind of the four broad pictures that you can look at just in, in terms of the, the main or the most common theories of the resurrection. So there is what we, uh, we, we have to just admit is what we would call the historical view. And that's what's presented by the gospels believed in the early Christian church and still in the Christian church of every denomination and sect. It's based on the most accurate, and reliable historical methods and material. So the second view in these, and there's there's three others, so there's a total of four theories. Um, the, uh, these latter three are ones that have been around basically ever since day one. So as soon as, uh, as, soon as Mary and as soon as Peter and John, you know, found the empty tomb, uh, pretty much all these popped up almost immediately as a way to try to explain everything away. So the, the, uh, the first one they call was the theory of the fraud. Um, and that's really, uh, just universally rejected as, as very unsatisfying to anybody that is rational or reasonable or likes to think through things with any degree of logic. Um, so the, the basic premise or the basic idea of it is that the, uh, the apostles stole and hid the body of Jesus and then deceived the world and started the church, which is uh, interesting. Um, it, it, I won't go really into depth about that, but you know, it's, it, it really just abandons any common sense about uh, what we know about Roman soldiers and their uh, diligence in their work. Uh, not to, not to uh, mention the timidity and despondency of the disciples at that time. You know, this would have been the lowest of the low for them, and they were never known as being particularly bold uh, people, uh, at least not before the resurrection. And, uh, you know, so to try to think of, of these timid, you know, kind of cowardly people just getting up and, and immediately just miraculously becoming very bold uh, in spreading the gospel, which apparently under this theory would have been a sham. You know, that's it doesn't make any sense. It's completely ridiculous. Um, so that's the theory of the fraud. This, the, uh, the next one is called the swoon theory. And this one is uh, also kind of goofy. Uh, but the idea is that Jesus, quote unquote, wasn't quite fully dead after the cross. So this is kind of like that princess bride thing. Uh, he was just mostly dead. <laughs> and so he, quote-unquote, allegedly got medical attention and somehow survived in a weakened state. Uh, now, of course, this also fails to recognize the Romans' expertise in killing, um, as well as failing to explain the powerful birth and expansion of the church. So, and all you have to do is kind of go back to that earlier uh, 
that earlier thought, you know, if the uh, the disciples at that point were at their lowest, most timid, most um, cowardly kind of state of their entire lives, and then to see, you know, a very anemic, very weak, on the verge of death leader, you know, that's not going to make them, oh, wow, yeah, we're going to go out and, and boldly proclaim that this guy, you know, narrowly avoided death by the skin of his teeth. You know, that's that's not how a powerful move like this works. No, that's how a lot of uh, maybe similar kind of swoons over the centuries have been presented and unfortunately have uh, accurately been uh, <laughs> called out. Um, so swoons themselves are very common or very popular, um, but in this particular case, it's just completely uh, unfounded. And then the fourth one, the last one, is um, another one that's rather popular and even still is pretty popular today, unfortunately, is they call it the vision theory. And that idea was basically that Christ only rose in the imagination of his friends who mistook a subjective vision for actual reality. Uh, so that thought, of course, um, in a nutshell, being that they all had a vision of the resurrected Lord, but it wasn't, quote unquote, his physical resurrected body. And uh, again, that's just another one that doesn't stand up to uh, common sense or to any degree of logical thinking. Uh, Part of it is when you look through scripture, you see just the uh, number of different people that uh, experienced or encountered and had conversations with the risen Lord. Uh, you look at the words that were recorded from the risen Lord and how they, uh, it's profound. It's, it's insightful teaching uh, and varying, uh, just just unexplainable other, other than him being resurrected. But then outside of that, you think about the number of different people. You think about the number of days, you know, kind of this 40-day period after the resurrection that Jesus showed up to all of the disciples, um, to Mary and, and to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then he, just, he appears at one time to over 500 people at once. And this is over the span of 40 days before the ascension. And, you know, if you're a proponent of the vision theory, a couple of the problems you have to think through is one is, how do you explain kind of mass vision or mass uh, hallucinations that are so uh, unified and so inspiring and taking place over such a long amount of time, but then immediately stopping after the 40th day, you know, that it's not something that consisted or persisted. Um, and then, of course, uh, the earlier problems that we mentioned of how do you have so many people in so many different locations retelling essentially the same events? Uh, so that's a lot of issues with that. Um, but nevertheless, so those are just a couple of quick examples of, you know, what are maybe some of the, the main views that you can take when approaching the resurrection. Uh, but I really wanted to take a look at a, uh, a kind of another interesting uh, theological idea that comes up when we talk about the resurrection. And it's this idea, or what we call it is the doctrine, quote unquote, of the atonement. And the idea is, um, well, not, not the idea, but rather the question is, what is or what was the atonement? And how do we interpret that through scripture, through uh, all of the other uh, ways that we have to identify truth you know, since then? So things like our own experience, our own reasoning, our own reading and understanding of scripture, our own ability to study, uh, and of course, church traditions, the, uh, the great cloud of witnesses. So we always want to have accountability in these guys. Whenever we're 
bringing up questions that uh, that are so central and so impacting to the entire uh, faith, really, uh, the entire system. Um, and so it's kind of interesting. I came across this article that was really good. Um, feel free to look it up when uh, at the end of this episode. And it's by a, a writer named Stephen Morrison. And he did a little bit of a study and just kind of looked into what are some of the the most popular views of the atonement, um, you know, both kind of throughout church history and then even still today uh, in modern time, you know, what's what are kind of the major views or the most common views of the atonement. And I thought it would be kind of a cool uh, opportunity just to go through and and do a quick overview on these and give you just a little bit of a, of a insight into each of these. And so he's listed out seven of the most common views of the atonement. And we'll just do a quick touch on those here. Uh, spoiler alert, none of these are my own view. Um, and maybe someday down the road in a future episode, we might get to that. Uh, but I definitely see a lot of validity in each of these. And uh, I also see some problems with each of these. Uh, so I'm going to just kind of jump through the list and give you a little bit of a background on each one. And uh, hopefully you find this useful. So starting with uh, number one is the moral influence theory. So this is one of the earliest theories for the atonement, uh, the moral influence theory. And in, a, in simple terms, it just taught that Jesus came and died in order to bring about a positive change to humanity. This moral change comes through the teachings of Jesus alongside his examples and his actions. The most notable name uh, that would fall under this group would be that of Augustine from the 4th century, whose influence almost single-handedly had the greatest impact on Western Christianity. So he affirmed the moral influence theory as the main theory of the atonement, alongside of the ransom theory, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, within this theory, the death of Christ is understood as a catalyst to reform society, inspiring men and women to follow his example and live good, moral lives of love. In this theory, the Holy Spirit comes to help Christians produce this moral change. Logically, in this theory, the eschatological development, too, becomes about morality, where it is taught after the death of the human race uh, will be judged by the conduct, by their conduct in life. This, in turn, creates a strong emphasis on free will as the human response to follow Jesus' example. And although Augustine himself differs here in that he did not teach free will, but instead uh, that human beings are incapable of change themselves and require God to radically alter their lives uh, sovereignly through the Holy Spirit. So this theory focuses not just on the death of Jesus, but also his entire life. This sees the saving work of Jesus not only in the event of the crucifixion, but also in all the words that he has spoken and the example he has set. In, his, in this theory, the cross is merely a ramification of the moral life of Jesus. He's crucified as a martyr due to the radical nature of his moral example. In this way, the moral influence theory emphasizes Jesus as our teacher, our example, founder, leader, and ultimately, as a result, our first martyr. So that is the moral influence theory. Um, number two, the ransom theory. So the ransom theory of the atonement is one of the first major theories of the atonement. It's often held alongside of the moral influence theory and often deals more with the actual death of Jesus. Uh, what it actually means, uh, the uh, the crucifixion, what it means, and its effect upon humanity. So this theory finds its roots in the early Christian church, uh, particularly with Origen in the 3rd century. 
Um, this uh, theory essentially teaches that Jesus died as a ransom sacrifice paid either to Satan, which is the most dominant view, or to God the Father. So Jesus' death then acts as a payment to satisfy the debt on the souls of the human race, the same debt we inherited from Adam's original sin. Uh, so just kind of a summarized view of the ransom uh, view, <laughs> a summary of the ransom view, there we go, is that essentially um, the theory is claiming that Adam and Eve sold humanity over to the devil at the time of the fall. Hence, justice required that God pay the devil a ransom, for the devil did not realize that Christ could not be held in the bonds of death. Once the devil accepted Christ's death, Christ's death as a ransom, this theory concluded uh, that justice was satisfied and God was able to free us from Satan's grip. Redemption in this theory means to buy back, to purchase the human race from the clutches of the devil. The main controversy here with this theory is the act of paying off the devil. Some have written that this is not a fair statement at all to say that the uh, ransom theory uh, believes that the devil is paid, but rather that this is an uh, act of ransom uh, that Christ frees humanity from the bondage of sin and death. In this way, Ransom relates to the Christus Victor theory, uh, but it's worth differentiating here because in one way these views are similar, but in another way they are very different. Um, and so that leads directly into number three, which is the Christus Victor. And that's basically just a Latin term uh, that means basically Christ the Victor. So classically, Christus Victor theory of atonement is widely considered to be the dominant theory for most of the historical Christian church. In this theory, Jesus dies in order to defeat the powers of evil, such as sin, death, and the devil, in order to free mankind from their bondage. This is related to the ransom view, with the difference being that there is no payment to the devil or to God. Within the Christus Victor framework, the cross did not pay off anyone, but defeated evil, thereby setting the human race free. Gustav Aulen argued that this theory of the atonement is the most consistently held theory for church history especially in the early church up until about the 12th century before Anselm's satisfaction theory came along. He writes that the work of Christ is first and foremost a victory over the powers which hold mankind in bondage, and those are sin, death, and the devil. He calls this theory the classic theory of the atonement. While some will say that Christus Victor is compatible with other theories of the atonement, others argue that it is not. Uh, though the author here is not found, uh, that most theologians believe that, or wait, he says that he's found that most people do agree that Christus Victor is true, um, even if it is not for them the primary theory of Christ's death. Um, and so that's kind of the classic view and probably the one that I would be the most close, uh, closely inclined towards. Uh, number four, four out of seven, we're getting close. The satisfaction theory. So this is, uh, again, by Anselm. So in the 12th century, Anselm of Canterbury proposed a satisfaction theory for the atonement. In this theory, Jesus' death is understood as a death to satisfy the justice of God. Satisfaction here means restitution and the mending of what was broken and the paying back of a debt. In this theory, Anselm emphasizes the justice of God and, and claims that sin is an injustice that must be balanced. His satisfaction theory essentially says that Jesus died in order to pay back the injustice of human sin and to satisfy the justice of God. This theory was developed in reaction to the historical dominance of the Roman of the ransom theory. Excuse me, <laughs> the Roman theory, uh, the ransom theory that God paid the devil with Christ's death. And some saw that this theory was logically flawed because what does God owe Satan? 
Therefore, in contrast with the ransom theory, Anselm taught that it is humanity who owes a debt to God, not God to Satan. Our debt, in this theory, is that of injustice. Our injustices have stolen from the justice of God and therefore must be paid back. Satisfaction theory then postulates that Jesus pays back God in his death on the cross of God, and this is the first atonement theory to bring up the notion that God is acted upon by the atonement, which is a very key point to, to highlight here. So the satisfaction theory leads uh, quite naturally into number five, which is the penal substitutionary theory. And this idea of the atonement is uh, really a development from the Reformation. The reformers, specifically Calvin and Luther, took Anselm's satisfaction theory and modified it slightly. They added a bit more of a legal or forensic framework to this notion of the cross as satisfaction. The result is that within penal substitution, Christ dies to satisfy God's wrath against human sin. Jesus is punished, penal, in the place of sinners, substitution. In order to satisfy the justice of God and the legal demand of God to punish sin. In the light of Jesus' death, God can now forgive the sinner because Jesus has been punished in the place of the sinner. In this way, meeting the retributive requirements of God's justice. This legal balancing of the ledgers is at the heart of the theory, which claims that Jesus died for legal satisfaction. It's also worth mentioning that in this theory, the notion of imputed righteousness is postulated. So this theory of the atonement contrasts with Anselm's satisfaction theory in that God is not satisfied with the debt of justice being paid by Jesus, but that God is satisfied with punishing Jesus in the place of mankind. The notion that the cross acts upon God, conditioning him to forgiveness, originates from Anselm's theory, but here in the penal substitution view, uh, the means are different. This theory of the atonement is perhaps the most dominant today, and especially uh, within the Reformed and Evangelical traditions. All right, five down, two to go. <clears throat> Number six, the governmental theory. So the governmental theory is... Uh, a theory of the atonement, it's, it's just got a slight variation upon the penal substitution view. So it's very similar. Um, and the major difference is in the, uh, the Methodism. So that uh, this difference is to the extent to which Christ suffered. In the governmental theory, Jesus Christ suffers the punishment of our sin and propitiates God's wrath. In this way, it is similar to the penal substitution. However, in the governmental theory, Christ does not take the exact punishment we deserve. He takes a punishment. So he dies on the cross, therefore, to demonstrate the displeasure of God towards sin. He died to display God's wrath against sin and the high price with which it must be paid, but did not specifically satisfy that particular wrath. The governmental theory also teaches that Jesus died only for the church. And if you, by faith, are part of the church, then you can take part in God's salvation. The church then acts as a sort of hiding place from God's punishment. This view contrasts both the penal substitution and satisfaction models, uh, but retains the fundamental belief that God cannot forgive if Jesus does not die a propitiating death. So you can see quite a, quite a strong similarity between uh, really those three views together, the satisfaction view, the uh, penal substitution view, and then of course the uh, governmental theory. And so the, the last one uh, that's outlined in this article, number seven, is the scapegoat theory. And uh, this is probably the most modern 
of the uh, the atonement theories that are outlined in this article, um, and hopefully, uh, hopefully you don't totally discard it. Although I would say I uh, am least inclined probably to agree with this one, but it's still interesting. So the scapegoat theory—it's a modern atonement theory rooted in the philosophical concept of the scapegoat. So here, um, there's a few key uh, figureheads, so such as Rene Girard, James Allison. Uh, so the idea is that Jesus dies as the scapegoat of humanity. This theory moves away from the idea that Jesus died in order to act upon God, such as the, uh, the last three views that we were looking at, or as a payment to the devil, such as in the ransom view. Scapegoating, therefore, is considered to be a form of a nonviolent atonement in the, the sense that Jesus is not a sacrifice, but rather just a victim. There are many philosophical concepts that come uh, within this model, but in the general sense, we can say that Jesus as the scapegoat means the following. First, Jesus is killed by a violent crowd. Second, the violent crowd kills him, believing that he is guilty. Third, Jesus is proven innocent as the true son of God. And fourth, the crowd is therefore deemed guilty. So uh, James Allison, uh, again, one of the kind of the chief figureheads of this movement, summarizes the scapegoating theory like this. Christianity is a priestly religion which understands that it is God's overcoming of our violence by substituting himself for the victim of our typical sacrifices that opens up our being, able to enjoy the fullness of creation as if death were not. So there you have it. Seven of the most commonly held views of the atonement. Uh, hopefully that was helpful, useful for you. Uh, let me know in the comments if you learned something new or if there was any views that uh, maybe were excluded from this list that you think would be worth considering uh, or if there was any that uh, maybe changed your way of thinking about the atonement. Uh, I'd love to interact with you, uh, whether through the comments or through social media and so forth. Uh, and that's all we've got for this week. Uh, next week will be the one-year anniversary of this podcast, uh, celebrating the 12th episode. So maybe we'll do a little something special. A little bit unique and different. Uh, anyways, hope you have a fantastic month, fantastic week. Uh, keep leaning into the arms of our wonderful Savior. Be blessed.